Shalhevet High School presents the Radical Moderation Podcast. Here's your host, Rabbi Ari Siegel. Hello and welcome to the Radical Moderation Podcast. I'm your host, Ari Siegel. Joined today with a very special guest, Maish Bain, the president of the Orthodox Union and also a partner at Ropes Gray, a law firm uh, worldwide, right, Maish? Correct. And with, but we're here in his office in New York City, right in the middle of, right near Times Square. Great view looking outside. So thank you for having me here. Um, just a reminder to all my listeners, if you can uh, give us that five-star rating, it'll really pop our uh, listenership. And uh, if you're enjoying the podcast and you want others to enjoy it, please make sure to give us that five-star rating. As always, if you have any questions, feedback, uh, good, bad, or the ugly, please email me at a.segal at shalhevet.org. I'd love to hear from you. So, Maish, I always start off my podcast with some quick-hitting questions. So, maybe share with our listeners what book is on your shelf that you're reading now that people might be surprised. People be surprised? Um I'm reading a book. I forget what it's called. Um, I don't remember the title of it. Give us the summary. It's a it's a book that interviews um, 40 people over the age of 80 about what made their life successful, hmm. and it's something about something to the uh, to the effect of you know the the advice of the wisest, which I think sends the message that life experience is probably the greatest source of wisdom for people's practical decisions in life. And I'm finding that very entertaining and very interesting. Is it a Jewish book? or it's... No, no, it's a secular book. All right. So what we'll do is maybe when we find out the name of it, we will post it on our next to the okay. link to this. And so is there a particular piece of advice that you found powerful that you would share? I, I, I One of the pieces that I found interesting in that book was the ability to recognize mistakes and be honest with yourself when you made a mistake to be able to start over rather than get more and more invested in mistakes that are made. Yeah, I mean, it seems you look around in the world today, the mistakes that happen, it's not necessarily the mistake itself. It's the digging in deeper as you're rather than just owning the mistake and, and moving forward. There's a tendency in our world to dig in a little bit deeper and, and to almost try to push yourself out of it. It's like, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. <laughs> exactly, exactly. All right, well, I'll look forward to reading that book. I'm, it sounds fantastic. And it almost, you know, today I feel like there's a tendency or a movement towards the youth movement. And everyone, you know, is you're looking for CEOs that are pushing forward and new ideas. And we tend to push the elder folk out to the side. And so uh sounds like maybe a return to some uh, admiration for, for wisdom born out of life experience might be due. Well, I think that's a fundamental difference between Western culture and Jewish values. Mm-hmm. And I think we suffer enormously because of it. Yeah. I think we, we have forfeited and squandered a lot of the experience and wisdom that we should be building a community based on rather than looking for the next trend and the next value system. And you, I think we're suffering dramatically because of it. Do you see in the Jewish community a change? Meaning when you were growing up, you saw there was more kavod, there's more honor for the Oh, elderly in the community, and now it's changed, or you're seeing that more in the world? Oh, I, I, look, the world certainly has gone that direction. I think that the Jewish community and the Orthodox community in particular has been caught up in it. Uh-huh. I think another dimension, however, that has influenced that trend was the Holocaust, where there was a post-Holocaust 
perspective that you had to focus on the next generation and rebuilding Judaism. So an enormous percentage of our resources, perhaps totally out of whack with historical focus, was on children and on the next generation. And it's come to the point, in my view, that we have totally um, belittled the value of religious and spiritual growth of older people. And by older, I certainly mean older over the age of 60, 70, and 80, but I also mean over the ages of 30 and 40. You know, we have a perspective that education is all about the young, and that's not the way Judaism is supposed to be. Education is supposed to be a lifelong trend and a lifelong exercise. And because we become so children-centric, we've totally neglected that perspective to much, to much expense. That's remarkable. So let's, I, I was not planning on talking more about this, but that's an interesting comment. So I know you run, the OU runs the Orthodox, uh, the OU Center in Israel, full of lectures for elderly and for adult, you know, people and retirees. Um, is that something the Orthodox Union plans on focusing on moving forward? If so, are given limited resources, does that mean money's coming away from uh, day school education or camping or things of that nature? First of all, I don't think there are limited resources right now. I think there are an extraordinary amount of resources in the Jewish community, in the Orthodox community in particular. Um, I think there's a significant amount of resources that are not being expended altogether. And I think one of the reasons that that's the case is because people aren't excited or motivated to invest in Jewish community activities and growth. Um, Why is that? They're I, seeing... Because I think it's boring uh -huh. and people are not being creative and people are being very stagnant in their expectations and in their trends. And I think when issues or ideas come up that are exciting, there's plenty of resources to support them. In not the current issue of Jewish Action, but in the prior issue of Jewish Action, I wrote a column talking about this very issue, about retired age people, um, and the fact that we are totally neglecting that dimension of our community as a very significant component of our religious growth. I mean, we believe as a community that each one of us has our individual soul, our individual neshama, but we also have a collective neshama, a collective soul of the Jewish community. And that's why we're so invested in each other's religious growth, because collectively the boat rises with the rising tide and on, and on a spiritual level. But we're totally ignoring the fact that there is a growing, an enormously growing constituency of baby boomer and earlier than baby boomer communities that are living a much longer life and a healthier life than ever before. I mean, I think when I was a kid, the general perspective was that you retired at the age of 65 to die. And I think today it's a realistic expectation for people who retire to live 20, 30 years often in very good health. And that creates an opportunity for religious growth that you really don't have a chance to do when you're younger because you're totally consumed with building your career, with raising your children. And when you reach the ages of 65, 70, and you have, for most of us, a degree of, of independence, that's not to say there isn't a responsibility to work with your children and grandchildren and very often an, an, a responsibility to continue to earn some money, but certainly on a lesser degree, that creates an enormous amount of time capacity. Hmm. And that time capacity is not being tapped into, both in terms of religious experiences directly, such as learning Torah, which people may have not had the time to invest in and develop the skill sets, and now they do have the time, as well as prayer, where we tend during our middle years of adulthood to be very quick in putting on our tefillin and taking them off and running into a minion and running out. And suddenly, when you have time to pray properly, we're not teaching people how to reorient and do that. Mm. But even beyond those very direct religious experiences, we have now a, a, a community of wise, 
experienced people with all kinds of skill sets that the community could be able to tap into and to grow based on. And we complain continuously about all the needs that we have in the community that we don't have the capacity to fund and to, to address. Well, there's a new resource and the resource is retired age people who have that wisdom and have that skill set and we're not using them. Yeah, I'm just I'm just envisioning, and this is such a, a grand vision you have. I don't know. Every shul has a kollel for their adult members, and so the kids, just by osmosis to some degree, or the grandkids are walking in and seeing adults, you know, 65 and up, who I don't know in the rest of the world are often uh, Barbados or Cancun. They're seeing these uh, their grandparents and people who are their grandparents' age who are studying Torah, davening a little extra, you know, praying with a little extra intent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a pretty remarkable idea for our community and a resource that, as you said, is probably free to some degree. I mean, it's and, un- and in addition, spending their time helping others. Yeah. You know, we, we lament very often during our adult years that we don't have the capacity because of our conflicting demands to spend enough time doing chesed, getting involved in Jewish community organizations, visiting the sick and the like. But when we have the time, we're not trained and given the direction of how to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's, I, th- I think, one of the critical areas for the Orthodox community to reorient its focus. Would love to see that. Okay, second, that turned into a more serious question than a quick hitting one. I'm looking forward to the rest of this episode. Uh, What's your favorite moment on the Jewish calendar? I I don't mean Purim or or standing, you know, for Kol Nidre. I I mean, sort of like, well, with your family, if you were thinking of a moment where you, well, it could be your personal one, and a family moment. That's your that's your favorite moment. Well, I think the family moment is a um, an interesting question because at this point in our lives, our family is pretty dispersed. We have children all over the place, and uh, we don't often get together. Certainly, the Seder night is a intense family experience because it's more often than not the time where more more of us are together than otherwise. Another interesting family moment, which is in the context of that disbursement is being on the phone moments before the beginning of Yom Kippur, giving blessings to my children and grandchildren around, uh, very often around the world or certainly around the country, um, which is a pretty intense experience and something that you are not only engaged in the moment, but also begin to refocus on the growth of your family and uh, and where they are at in life. That blessing that that families give before uh, Yom Kippur is is a very moving moment. You're right. It's almost like a reset button, and you sort of those words echoing of you know I want my child to grow up to be someone who's kind and committed to Torah values and uh, earning a living, but in a in a positive way. All those things are so I can still hear my my parents giving me the bracha. Do you do it over Skype now or by phone? You still do it by phone. You do by phone. Because as a, as you're growing up your parent is giving it to you face to face. And there's even that, there's something beautiful about it. And as I've gone and moved away from my family as well, it's it's over the phone. But I I wonder if Skype is creeping into our pre-Yom Kippur brachot. That could be. Could be. It's the the blending of technology and religion. Okay, final... question just to get our give your our audience a sense a little bit more who Moish Bain is. You grew up in Montreal. <clears throat> You're now a partner at Ropes Gray and president of the OU. How does that happen? Give us the short version, but share with us how you got to this point in life. Well, interestingly enough, um, I got to this point in life very deliberately. 
and which is a very unusual. I think the vast majority of people who are responsible people tend to find themselves in completely different places when they are at my stage in life than they anticipated. Because if they're responsible, they're reacting to circumstances and reacting to events that occur that are totally anticipated. Uh, through God's uh, divine guidance, my original plan was to do pretty much what I'm doing today. And um, I, I think I've been blessed with enormous gifts that God has given me and my family to allow me to do that over the different stages in life. Uh, when I was very young, still in Montreal, I was very active in community matters. I had uh, all kinds of dreams. I remember in the um, Kipper War, I was 13 years old, and um, I was running around Montreal with the women of the Federation of Montreal collecting donations that people had made as pledges during the course of the war. For those of you uh, who are old enough to remember that, that was a very intense fundraising experience as we all were terrified about the uh, existence of the state of Israel at the time. And um, through my high school years, when I went to yeshiva and thereafter, I continued to be involved. When I was in law school, I started a Jewish community organization at law school. So my, my intent had always been to be able to contribute as much to the community as I could. Is this something you saw from your parents? I'm sorry to interject. Where, where did you get this bug of leadership? Oh, let's, first of all, let's not use the word leadership. Okay. I, find, I find the word leadership to be very indulgent. I much prefer the word activism. Leadership is almost like a, a bribe that we offer young people to get involved in the community because, hey, you get to be a leader. And I often say people who want to be leaders shouldn't be leaders. People who want to be activists should be activists. So I always wanted to be an activist, um, whether it would be in the form of leading an organization or participating was really secondary uh, in my mind. I'm not sure exactly where I got it. I was a weird kid. Like I was the first kid in Hebrew Academy Montreal, certainly in my age range that was wearing my tzitzit out. I don't know where that came from. And um, I also, over the years, had subsequently um, incredibly influential teachers who focused very much on community affairs. But somehow I had that bug even earlier than that. And I'm not sure exactly where it came from. My father, uh, Oliver Shalom, was the treasurer of the local shul and the local um, day school that we, we attended. But he certainly wasn't uh, as invested in it as a life mission as I am. Okay, so tell us uh, about the Orthodox Union presidency. What's that like? What's, what, what are the hardest parts of the job? What are the, what are the parts you enjoy most, if there's such a thing? Well, I actually am having the time of my life. I don't think I've ever enjoyed doing anything as much. I think it's a, um, a unique platform that a layperson could only dream of to have an impact on the community in such a broad range. Um, the Orthodox Union, as you may or may not appreciate, is probably at this point the largest Orthodox organization in the world. Um, and it, in terms of using its resources, exclusively focused on Orthodox Judaism and certainly not, certainly among the non-government sponsored organizations. And as a layperson, to be able to have the impact in so many different arenas, ranging from political action to Kirov through NCSY to all kinds of chesed events such as Yachad and other kinds of chesed and initiatives that we're embarking on is just incredible. And I, I wake up every day excited about the problems as well as the opportunities. So, so first of all, what's the biggest challenge? What's been your coming into office? Are you in year one? Is this your first? I just finished my first year. So we're, we're just finished. Mazdov. Um, what, what has been your biggest challenge in year one or the thing that's been most surprising to you that you've had to deal with? 
Well, I think the biggest surprise I had was the breadth of the organization and the degree of complexity among its various arms. I didn't realize in advance, even though I had been involved for many years, how large it really is and how many employees there are that you are ultimately responsible with your executive staff in, in reviewing. And that's a lot more daunting than I had, I had anticipated. I think the biggest challenge is to engage people to think in new ways and not to be invested in a circumstance or an attitude just because that's the way we've been doing it until now. And I tend to try to look at things anew continually, try to evaluate issues and circumstances under their current format. And very often you'll find people who are so con invested in the status quo and in the success of the past that we assume that past success needs to translate into continuing momentum rather than understanding that circumstances change and therefore momentum has to change as well. So you're, you're pushing back a little bit against inertia and sort of that's the way we've been doing it. It's working well or ish. We think it's working well, but let's keep it going. And you're asking the OU to revisit their the way that we do business. Right. And there are many people among OU leadership who share my attitude, but not a lot, not all. So as the president, it's interesting. Um, is the OU give the president, uh, who, which is a lay leadership position, more oversight and, and input over the actual direction of the organization? Because I think, in, uh, at least in my nonprofit world, there's a head of school and that head of school gives direction. The board is there to support the head of school. It sounds like the OU has very good professional leadership and the president comes in and, and for lack of a better term, kind of puts his stamp on it. Well, it's not really the president in a vacuum. There is a large group of lay leaders who are all very influential and very involved. Um, there, the way it's structured is that there's a board of directors, which is pretty large, of 60 plus people, but then there's an executive committee of 12, 13 people, and they meet, we meet on a biweekly basis, and each one of them has strong opinions and strong influence over the direction of the organization. I think that the role of the president is no different than the role of a father, and that is not telling people what to do, but trying to convince people that your view is the right view. Huh. That's a great segue to my last question for this segment. Um, recently, you wrote an article about parenting in the Jewish Action magazine. You mentioned Jewish Action a little earlier. We've actually spoken about it on this show uh, a number of times as like I think at least the premier Jewish publication in many ways, just in terms of the quality of the writing, the graphic layout, the the stories they're covering. It's the Orthodox Union's uh, monthly or quarterly. quarterly, sorry, magazine. And in it, uh, you wrote a piece on parenting, which I know is something, as you just mentioned, uh, running the OU is a little bit like being a father and strongly encouraging our uh, kids to do what we see as the right thing through our years of experience. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about your philosophy on chinuch, on parenting? Well, I, I think the, the, the primary theme I was trying to convey in that article um, was that parents need to appreciate that they are the primary responsible parties for their children. And when I say that, I don't just mean the physical needs of their child, but also their intellectual, psychological, and spiritual needs. And there tends to be an attitude in our community that the school is the primary responsible entity for our children's education and our children's religious growth. And uh, I remember when my children were younger, sitting around the table on Shabbos with peers in the community, and they would lament about, well, children don't know how to pray anymore. What are they teaching in school? And children have no midos. What are they teaching in school? And my response always was, what does that have to do with school? If they're not praying and they don't have proper behavior, it's your problem, not school's problem. Parents have to look at the school as a tool in their arsenal 
of, of uh, vehicles to impact their children, but it's their responsibility. And I think children are tremendously handicapped by being left to a broad community-based enterprise in determining what direction they, their future should take, what skills they should be focused on, what weaknesses need to be uh, buttressed. And I think only a parent could really be playing that role. Why do you see parents backing away from this? Is this two-parent two parent homes, you know, working homes? Is it, we're just exhausted, they saw a more restrictive parenting and now they're more permissive? Or is it just a general malaise of parenting in the community, you know, in the world as we look at social media and Facebook and the internet and it's just so much and it's overwhelming and so parents are sort of given up? Is it... Where do you see that coming from? I think there are, ma there are many sources of it. I think that certainly parents are overwhelmed. Uh, not everyone, but many have enormous economic responsibilities, enormous pressures. We have large families very often with uh, conflicting demands for our time. I once made a calculation um, of all of the hours in the day that those who I respect and care about told me I should be spending every day, ranging from my wife to my rabbi to my doctor, and it came to like 37 hours a day. And people are overwhelmed. And um, children tend to be um, allowed to be taken care of by others as, to, as compared to other responsibilities that you can't have somebody else make a living for you. Having said all that, I think the biggest problem is that we are not taught, you and I and others of older generations were not taught that being a parent is the most important role that you play in life. And if it's viewed as the most important role, then you figure out a way to keep it on your radar screen front center. I think we've taught a lot of things are our primary responsibility, but not bringing up our children, certainly from a psychological, educational and religious perspective. Do you see that shift? Because I, I see that in the communities also. People are shifting more towards your primary responsibilities, being able to afford Jewish communal life. So studies have come out recently that show that the centrist modern Orthodox community, whatever you want to call it, is the highest earning denomination within Judaism. Uh, the cost of living is just keeps going up and up. The Nishma study, or, or one of those studies, said the number one you know, number one challenge is sort of the cost of Jewish living, Jewish education. And so we've created a system while it's working to some degree, it's so expensive that it's pushing parents primarily to put their focus on making sure that they can afford Jewish life uh, and not, as you mentioned, you know, their primary responsibility, which is raising kids and raising a family. Uh, what are we doing there? How are we, where, where do you see that going? Is it only getting worse? Is there a point in time where we can turn it back? Well, I think that there's no question that the cost of living as an Orthodox Jew is overwhelming. And tuition in particular is um, hurting us as a family, hurting us as a community. But there is also other dimensions to that uh, crisis, and that is our lifestyle, which tends to be enormously high. And the expectations we have as a community of each other not only in terms of tuition, but also in terms of the way we live and the way we live our, our, have our homes and our vacations and our cars and the expectations we have of each other creates an enormous pressure. You know, this is a very interesting phenomena that is a result of a double-edged sword that exists in the Orthodox community. Uh, I hear, as you mentioned before, I'm here as a, at, at Ropes and Gray for many years, and I suspect, I don't know this for sure, but I, I suspect that out of the 250 to 300 partners at this firm, I'm the only one whose children grew up in a classroom sitting next to the children of truck drivers and 
clerks of stores. Uh, people here tend to send their children to either parochial private schools or, or live in high-end neighborhoods where private, pri public schools are, are populated by very high-end people. The Orthodox community doesn't run that way. The Orthodox community has an integrated community where people of all backgrounds live together and bring up their children together and send their children to the same schools. And in many regards, that's fantastic because our children are not restricted in their expectations based on their own backgrounds because of that integration. And therefore, you have children who grew up in homes that were not sophisticated in terms of Torah learning, but their best friend's father was a Rosh Hashiva. And that creates an enormous upside that they could look to. And similarly, economically, you could have a child who grew up in a very um, distressed financially home, but his best friend's father is a surgeon. And therefore, he could think about going to medical school while a typical child with that kind of background wouldn't even have that on their radar screen. That's the positive. But the negative implication of that is that children of families who are more economically distressed, or even not just distressed, but just ordinary course, are best friends with children of families who are very wealthy. Yeah. And that creates an expectation of children to live like their friends, and that creates pressure on the family. And that's a very, very difficult um, challenge for parents to deal with, and that creates enormous pressure that we have to figure out a way to circumvent. Well, that's a great way to close our first segment of this podcast. Uh, we'll pick up some of this on our next segment and more Radical Moderation. I thank you for joining me. Ari Siegel here of the Radical Moderation podcast with Maish Bain, president of the Orthodox Union, partner at Ropes Gray. It's been a real pleasure. Listeners, if you've enjoyed this uh, or any of our other episodes, please make sure to give us five stars so that others can enjoy it as well. 